<laughs> Did you like that? Um, well, first off, first off, you had to grow up. You know, you had to go to high school from 1984 to 1988. So, you know, um, pretty transformative uh, time. And, and, and frankly, some of the shittiest music on the planet came out of those four years. And hey, this is the Seek Outside podcast, Dennis, Kevin, and today we have with us Ryan Bussey. Ryan is the VP of sales for Kimber Firearms. He also is the chair of the Backcountry Hunter and Anglers Advisory Board. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing great. Good to be with you guys and um, appreciate a diversion from uh, homeschooling my two boys here to chat with you guys. So it's a, it's a good deal. Yeah, um, this COVID thing is really kind of changing the way we interact a whole lot. It, it is. Uh, <laughs> both of the boys right now are on Zoom calls uh, chatting with uh, their teachers as they um, try to figure out how to keep from flunking out of school. Now, they're, they're doing well, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's changed the way we do stuff. Has, boys. has that been a, a struggle, like for the teachers and stuff, for the kids? It really, it really has. I think the, the kids have adjusted to it okay. I think, um, and some teachers are better than others. I think a lot of those teachers feed off of just natural you know, person-to-person feedback in their classroom. Totally, And, yeah. and um, I, th- I think some of them have adjusted to this digital world better than others. Um, I think the kids, I don't know, they're pliable, you know. They, c- they can figure out the way to do this, and they can navigate all that technology. So they're doing okay. That's funny. Dennis and I were kind of talking about the same thing earlier today, that it's kind of odd having these podcasts without having um, the uh, feedback from 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 you know the physical feedback as to yep. when someone should talk or when someone something but we're all getting used to it yeah so yep. as part awesome. of this as part of this i noticed uh, a couple days ago that bha sent out a thing that there is no rondi yeah this year. yeah that was it i mean it's a different. So the what what Kevin's talking about there. That's a BHA National Rendezvous, actually North American Rendezvous. Um, it's been in Boise the last couple of years. It's our big signature event. Uh, thousands of people are there. Um, and it was on one hand, it was really tough uh, to hold that vote. The national board voted to, you know, cancel or pop- actually postpone it. You know, we'll figure out some other way to hold it. But on the other hand, it really. I mean, it was June first. It it wasn't a different difficult decision with regards to the science and the societal pressure I mean, we didn't have that big a choice it's it's uh it's sad for a group like bha that thrives on you know kind of in-person feedback just like we were talking about between members and you know hunters and anglers but but we'll figure out a way we can do some really cool online stuff so yep that's what we're going to do so you guys are going to follow the burning man lead then and go with a very virtual <laughs> Yeah, um, plan is so we're, you know, we're kids. We're a young organization, and we're pretty pliable too. But yeah, we're going to do a lot of. I don't know if we'll quite do, do the Bring Man deal, but um, we're going to do a bunch of virtual stuff. And then, as the country opens up, which I anticipate it will at some point, we, we'll we plan to have some smaller regionalized events. If maybe in the fall, if um, you know, if the science allows for that. So we're we're ready to go. We haven't cast everything in stone but um we're certainly going to do some of it digitally yeah i think the smaller regional stuff will work out pretty well yeah yeah can we can we host a party in grand junction probably (laughs) 
as long as it's less than 10 people. <laughs> well, that, uh, I mean, yeah. that, I mean, Kevin hits on it, you know, this, like, what's it going to be and how, and how soon is it going to be these, what are these group sizes going to look like? Um, we just don't know. I have, I kind of have this feeling it's, it's going to start by kind of our own group friends and, and Sarah and I, we live here in Montana and that's what we've started to see. If, if we can trust our several friends of ours who are kind of in our friend group, if they tell us and we trust that they've been quarantining or, you know, behaving really responsible for the last two and a half weeks, then like we did last night, we got together outside around a fire and we didn't hug each other, but you know, there were 10 of us around a fire, um, all of us six feet apart outside. So maybe that's the way this stuff starts. I don't know. Hmm. So um, that leads me to another question. Has BHA, uh, like in the state chapters, maybe in Washington, Oregon, places where they're kind of closing down hunting seasons, at least for non-residents, um, has that been a conversation in, in figuring out like how and why, why they're doing stuff like that? Yeah, it's certainly been. Um, I know that we have a lot of members, depending on the state. Um, I think we have a lot of members with really um, – passionate feelings about this stuff and it it has been a conversation for us i think generally um, i I think you hit on something most of it has been a non-resident uh shutdown in most states like montana just did it for turkeys and bears Hmm. residents it's still open and i think the rely upon when they come hunting those really aren't open for business in the traditional ways right now. And I think the science tells at least the governor here that they shouldn't be encouraging that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's really, really hard for us to think about um, hunting and fishing being restricted in those ways. But um, we also are trying to be responsible and adhere to the science of the, pand- the pandemic science and and hope we get this this sort of regulated. Um, I think the last thing that anybody from BHA wants, and it's not that spring isn't important. It's, you know, to some people, turkey hunting is the biggest thing on the planet. And, you know, to me, it's pretty important too. Um, but we don't need it. We don't need this to linger on into the fall um, or into the late summer when things really get ramped up from a hunting and fishing standpoint. So I think we're, although we don't have a, we don't have, you know, the organization doesn't have a particular stance on all of these and all of these various actions but we want to do we're trying to do the responsible thing and do the right thing for hunting and fishing and that's in these sorts of times it's not always clear what that is i agree i mean i would i would rather sacrifice my spring season than than sacrifice my fall stuff i was just i was just having a conversation with ryan lampers probably 30 minutes ago maybe an hour ago and we were talking about he was like, I've put in for everything I can in my state, and I'm hoping I get stuff in other states. And I'm kind of the same way. I, I've like, if there's a tag I can hunt in Colorado, I got it. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, to answer your question, yes, it's something that BHA members talk about a lot. It's not, it's not, we haven't taken any sort of official policy or board action on any of these various orders and mandates and everything else. Um, but but we're all, we're monitoring them, I and we know that all of our members in the local areas are 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 pretty on top of all of them. Hmm. 
Um, what what does the virtual virtual VHA rendezvous experience look like? Well, I think that it's taken shape right now because we just made this decision last week. Okay. But um, I, I'll give you a few um, examples. Um, and Kevin and Angie have uh, participated in, in this stuff. They, they kind of know what it looks like. But for instance, um, we can do really cool virtual um, seminars, which w one of the big things, the, the cool things about a BHA rendezvous is there's a full day, sometimes a day and a half of really fantastic seminars and panels. And, um, you know, a brew fest doesn't lend itself to an online event very well, but, yeah. but, uh, online panels and online seminars really do. And so I think you'll, you'll see some pretty cool stuff that we can do seminar wise. Um, and then we'll see how that branches out from there. But I know the staff's working on, on that kind of as a starter right now. Okay, cool. Now, one of the things we've kind of talked about is some of this stuff going to stick, right? Like some of the uh, things, I mean, there's a lot of changes to American society at this moment, but if, if some of this works, is there a potential that further on down the road and next year and the year after that instead of worrying about the small venue in Missoula, which it is kind of a small venue, that you turn a lot more stuff into virtual? You know, I, I think you hit on something, Kevin. I mean, my first answer is, like, I don't know. And also, I'm positive that some of what you say is right. I just don't know what. I, I We've had my guys. I think that we're in the middle of life and societal changing events now in, in America. And I think my personal thought is that a fair amount of this is going to stick in ways that we don't, we don't even really conceptualize right now. Um, I think of other events that we've lived through, like 9-11 changed us in ways that we didn't really anticipate. And now we just live with it. Just, you know, now you take your shoes off at the airport. It's just one of those things you never thought you'd do. And now you do it every day or well, whenever you fly. And I think, um, this whole pandemic thing is going to change us in even broader and, and more permanent ways. And maybe one of them is, um, a reliance on less travel and more virtual stuff. And maybe that impacts BHA. I just don't know, but I think your insight about massive societal changes is, is on the money. Oh, right. Yeah. And I mean, we were kind of all over the board as far as the different topics. That's a shock. It's a shocker with herring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. But I mean, there's so many different things that this could impact down the road. I, I, I just, something tells me we're in the middle of a, a, a it may be even a, a World War II type um, impact on our society. I hope it's for the better. I think, I think there's a lot of things that we as Americans do so right. And I think there's a lot of them that we do wrong. And maybe this will help us sort out some of that stuff and do some of it better. I know that's the way Herring looks at it too. Um, you know, I just, I don't know where it's going, but I, I hope we take this and um, figure out how to do some of the stuff better that we need to. So on that, um, I know you haven't changed since your high school photo. So what's the secret to rocking a perm like that? <laughs> Did you like that? Um, well, first off, first off, you had to grow up. You know, you had to go to high school from 1984 to 1988. So, you know, um, 
pretty transformative uh, time. And, and, and frankly, some of the shittiest music on the planet came out of those four years. And a lot of it had to do um, with that sort of fake ass hair. So um, I don't know what I was doing following a band like the outfield, but it, it, I look at that and I, I, I think I, an outfield song is going to play out of my mouth at any time. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. So you're kind of a general uh, outside of BHA. I yeah. know you're kind of a generalist as far as your outdoor activities. You fish a lot. You yep. have bird dogs. Yep. You big game hunt. Yep. You get your kids out. You do yep. camping trips and all that. Um, which ones? And, and you're actually quite a good cook. I mean, I will miss that dinner. Yeah. Or quite a good chef. I will miss that BHA dinner because I think that's an yeah. excellent time to get together and just really shoot the shit with a lot of people that I only really see like once a year. But yeah. if you had one day to spend doing one of them, which one would it be? So my kids uh, often ask me like, Dad, what's your favorite this or favorite that? And I, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I suck at favorites. Um, but I tell everybody if I had to pick one thing, if I had to give up everything and just keep one, it would be bird hunting behind my pointing dogs and for wild dog or for wild birds in, in big country. Um, a close second, I think, is uh, dry fly fishing or flats fishing with a fly rod, you know, something where you're hunting, hunting fish. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't really mean to downplay big game hunting because I love it too, but man, the interaction between dogs um, partnering with really good pointing dogs in big country, that's, I don't know, I just think as a sporting experience, that's about as good as it gets. What uh, what type of pointers do you have, or what breed? I've, I grew up with Britneys, and I always have Britneys. I have two Britneys right now, and I usually have a third breed, and I have a wire hair right now named Aldo, who I uh, love. He's coming through. He's really he's really a good dog, so I always run multiple dogs on the ground at one time. So Britneys and, and uh, either a short hair or wire hair. I love my short hair. My short hair is yeah. awesome. Yeah. So she's also enough of a character around the house to keep you entertained. Yeah. You know, I like, I guess kind of like people. I like, uh, I like dogs with personalities and, um, exactly. and, uh, wire hair or short hair. They definitely have personalities. So, um, I, I love that in a dog. Yeah. Now what you also get your kids out a lot. Um, I do, what yeah. is, what, what have you found really works for getting the kids out and engaged? Like I try to get my kids out a lot, right? They're a, they're a little older now. They're 17 and 20. Yep. Um, but it wasn't always easy because there becomes a time when their friends become really important. Yep. And um, that, that makes it a little harder to keep getting them out in the wild and getting them up at, when they're 17 it's a little harder to get them up at four o'clock and things like that to go out hunting or fishing yeah sarah and, sarah and i went turkey hunting this morning just her and i uh, got up at uh, 4 45 this morning and i noticed neither one of the two boys did um but to answer your question um like the first thing it odd i mean I, and this wasn't planned it's not like a product pitch for you guys but one of the first things we did we did um we got a camper early on when lander was a kid because i like I'll, I'll go you know i'll go bird hunting and sleep on the ground and get up and eat a granola bar and go for another three days i don't care but um 
the kids when they're little, you, you have to have some measure of comfort. And um, so that camper helped a lot. And then when we do a lot of overnight raft trips and overnight bird hunting trips, and I have one of your big teepees and um, being able to put a little stove in that and stand up and walk around, um, you know, get dressed without hunching over, sleep on a cot in there. I'm telling you, that's a, that's a huge key when you're getting kids out there because you can usually find, I, I've always been able to find hours of good experience with kids, which is important, you know, catching a fish, shooting a bird, whatever, getting a turkey and landers the lucky, get elk and deer and antelope. You can usually find those, but it's the, it's the fringe hardship around the edge that sometimes sears those kids' memory in a negative way. Um, and Sarah would say I was early on, you know, guilty of for forcing people to do things at the same speed and, and sort of um, tenor that I do them. And not everybody wants to do them that way, especially a young kid. So I don't know. Comfort, a big teepee and a, and a little wood stove in there. It's not a bad way to, to, uh, to help uh, your kids do things. I, w I would agree. I mean, I w I've been guilty of pushing them too hard. Um, my, my tolerance for crappy weather and windy ridges isn't necessarily what everyone else enjoys. Yep. Yep. I mean, I think it adds to the experience. I think that's part of the, like that, like, can you really have a good elk trip if you don't have some crappy weather? Is it really a good elk trip? To me, I mean, it sort of adds to it, but not, you know, Lander doesn't necessarily believe that. Sarah doesn't. Badge doesn't. My youngest son. So, um, keeping them a little bit comfortable while, while you're looking for those hours or days of magic is, is pretty important. Um, yeah, that's interesting, right? Because I mean, I appreciate a wood stove as well. Um, but it, so I have a two year, almost two year old daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, and just, uh, you know, just getting her outside, just hiking, right. She, she enjoys, enjoys doing that stuff. Um, but we don't go very far and we don't go very fast. That's for sure. Yeah. We, we started doing two trips that really lend themselves to good family stuff. And, you know, a couple examples we do, like I mentioned, tons of overnight river trips. And, you know, mm -hmm. we, load, we load a raft up with all our gear and we pick pretty good weather days for family, uh, for family trips. And so there's, it's not all just fishing. There's stuff in there that kids love to do. Jump off the raft, swim around, um, you know, play on sandy beaches on the river, um, set up camp pretty early instead of trying to cover so many river miles. So, and then sure. we do the same thing. Do We do an early season bird camp every year for about a week and um, we do it in September in Montana. It's a little warm for ideal bird hunting, but we don't bird hunt super hard. We bird hunt in the morning and then maybe in the evening and then set around camp and um, do what you do around camp and the kids have fun. And so picking the right trip is important, I think. Mm. So um, on your river trips too, you're taking a, it's a raft, like a big raft. Is that yep. right? Yeah. So we can, have a, yep. Yeah. 14 foot um, air that we load up with, <laughs> of Sarah swears we have too much gear in it. Maybe we do, but it's a raft trip and we're trying to have a decent time. Like I said, keep people a little comfortable. So we eat pretty good. We drink pretty well. We have a teepee on it. Yeah, the, the advantage, right, to bringing, bringing watercraft being that you can pack it full of uh, steaks and eggs yep. and coolers and stuff versus trying to backpack. Yep, yep. And that's the thing about, you can have a really awesome 
backcountry experience and really kind of act like you're car camping because you basically dump the contents of your car into your raft and then float down the river. Um, and yet for me, like I love getting away from people. I, I, I you know, that's the mm-hmm. experience for me. So you can do that without having to force your family into what Sarah calls force family fun. Um, you know, <laughs> a 10 mile hike and it through the rain. Well, not everybody wants to do that, but being on a river is a pretty good deal. Sure. Yeah. I like that. Force family fun. I'm a, yeah. uh, it's like type two fun. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, and, and she doesn't mean it in a good way, but yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Exactly for right. sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, cool, man. Can you, uh, so you sit on the, the BHA board, is that correct? I do. Yep. I'm okay. chair of the North American board of directorship. Okay. And then a little bit of background of your, um, the professional side of your life. So I grew up on a ranch in uh, Western Kansas, um, hunting and fishing and, you know, shooting guns, just like any ranch kid would do. I decided I wanted to chase kind of a dream and get into the sporting goods side of things, kind of chase what you wanted, you know, the stuff you would love to do. So Hmm. I started my career at Burris uh, Optics, actually in Greeley, Colorado. I was there for three years and then a friend and I um, started a sales and marketing operation for Kimber when it was real small, fledgling little company. And um, that was 20, that was in 1995. And I've been there, I've, I run a um, sales operation for Kimber and have done that since 1995. Okay. So um, was it always guns? I mean, rifles you kind of went from scopes to, to guns. Was that always, always the plan? No, it wasn't really a plan. I just, uh, I, you know, I just followed an opportunity and Kimber was a fledgling little company, you know, paycheck bouncing, had gone bankrupt twice. Um, and I think that w- w- it, as much as anything, it was a vehicle for me to move to Montana. And I took the risk and the company took the risk and it, it wasn't so much planned as the, I, I, I like, I like to sell things that I'm proud of, <clears throat> you know, gear that I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm sure you guys can relate to that. And, um, you know, in Kimber, when I started, it was it was a tiny company, but it was super high end um, rimfire rifle, something that you could be proud of. And then I, I feel good about the products we've developed over time. Um, they're all things that I would buy. I would want to use. Um, I, would, I would recommend to my friends. I don't feel like I'm um, making any compromises when I tell people it's the best gear you can buy because I, I believe it is. So magic about working in the sporting goods industry and using the gear from your company. Like I'm sure Kevin can relate to that. Like you look at it, you know, you crawl in that tent or for me, I use a rifle or whatever. And I think, you know, this is stuff that people want. They don't have to have it. They buy it because they want to have it. And um, that, that sort of aspirational purchase or asp- being a part of an aspirational life like that is a, is a cool thing, I think. Yeah, totally. So being that you're, um, that you work for Kimber, which is your preferred big game hunting rifle? So we, I, um, we played a major role in dreaming up the mountain ascent, whatever, however long ago it was, 10 more, 10 or more years ago. And I quickly became a 280 Ackley freak. Um, even though I'm not a big, I'm not a big, this is like blasphemy in the gun business to not be, uh, really opinionated about cartridges because that sells lots of guns like you, like the official stance is you you need like 15 rifles of different cartridges um mm-hmm. so that yes. you, so that you'll rush out and buy 15 rifles i i don't live that and i don't really believe in it um 
And, you know, I tell if anybody asks me, like, what's an awesome rifle to buy that I can do everything with, I tell everybody a 30 out 6 or a 308. It'll do, you know, it'll do anything you want to in North America. Um, I just happened to get hooked on a, a cartridge called 280 Ackley Improved because it, it just by accident fits in one of our small actions really well. So it's, if you're a, a truck guy or a, a pickup guy, it's as if you had a Toyota Tundra and somebody figured out a way to shove a Chevy Duramax diesel engine in there. Just nice. like it just barely fit. Like, you know, you just held your mouth just right and the engine plopped in. You're like, holy crap, my Duramax is super powerful. Well, that's kind of what a 280 Ackley in our model 84L rifle is. It's like a seven mag ballistics in a, in a really small five and three quarter pound rifle. And I've not, I hunt a lot. I hunt a lot of big game. I don't know how much, how many animals I've taken over the last 15 years, but I haven't taken a single one with anything but a 280 Ackley. Hmm. Antelope, elk, deer, you name it, mountain goats, like all kinds of stuff. I got uh, the 6.5 Creedmoor from you guys a couple of years ago. Yep. And up to that point, I had been a 30-yacht shooter for the most part. And, I mean, that 6.5 coupled with the 143 LDX has been – Stuff yep. has not been going very far, and that thing is such an easy shooter. It has a little muzzle yep. brake on it. It's it's literally. I like to joke with people that it's kind of like a little Girl Scout gun. Isn't it like? Can you believe, Kevin, that you like you carried? I don't know what your rifle was before that. I remember when you bought that six five, but like, I can't believe I carried around rifles that weighed like eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve pounds before this. Like, what the hell was I thinking? Right. I totally, I totally get you. But I mean, I've taken two elk with that six, five, uh, you know, a nice buck. It's just yep. been, it's been money and it's been yep. easy to shoot, easy to carry. There's nothing wrong with it. So, yeah, I, I tell everybody with a mountain rifle like ours and the gun that Kevin's talking about, that's the 84 M action. That's the one action size, a little bit shorter than the 84 L that I just described the 280 Ackley, but his rifle weighs, about four pounds, 14, 15 ounces. So the rifle without a scope or anything on it is below five pounds. Um, and it's, if you think about a mountain rifle, you carry that thing for, I don't know how many thousands of hours and you shoot it for a grand total of, in the whole life of the rifle when you're hunting, maybe you shoot it for a total of 30 seconds, maybe, if you, if you have the thing 20 years. So you carry it a lot and you shoot it a little, that's what it's for. Yep. So I was on a hunt a couple of years ago with a guy you know, um, Kevin Sloan, yep. and, and another guy you know, Sean. Um, yeah, yep. You know, Sean, Sean from BC Woodrick, Sean Woodrick. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we got we got talking about Kimber really needing to do like some sort of AR lightweight deal. Uh -huh. um, what are your thoughts on that? A lightweight AR. Yeah. Are you are you going to buy that, Kevin, or are you just baiting me? <laughs> uh, yeah I, I don't know there's so many companies that do ars um i'm a bolt guy um i mean there's i think there's 200 companies doing variations of ars of course i guess you could say that about bolt guns too there's a lot of companies that do bolt guns but i don't know it's tough for me to see that the ar business is so commoditized and i don't i don't see a place but um maybe maybe a seek outside ar i don't know you guys should try that <laughs> <laughs> throw it back to us eh? yeah huh. yeah you if you're hunting with woody and kevin um that was an entertaining camp i can promise you that 
It was very. Yeah. Um, Whitrick, he's a character. Certainly is. Uh, what do you say to people that, you know, um, talk about like five pound rifle versus a eight, nine pound rifle? Um, when they talk about accuracy, like what, what's the comeback for that, right? Because that's all they're going to, it's kind of the argument, right? If, if it's too light, you can't hold it still. Yeah. So, so accuracy. So our rifles, uh, a, our four and three quarter pound rifle is just as accurate, just as precise as a 10 pound rifle. But you hit on, you really hit on the, um, the question about a light rifle and it, it's, it's not as easy to shoot a light rifle as it is to shoot a heavy rifle. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you plop a heavy rifle down on a rest or whatever, and it just stays there, it just lays there, right? Like a cinder block. Mm -hmm. It's easy, it doesn't move. Um, and so there is an art to shooting a light rifle. And um, one of the biggest arts to it is you, you really need to let it free recoil. Um, don't, don't lay a bunch of stuff on top of it. Let it free recoil and um, get used to shooting it that way. But, you know, it, if you if you buy a light rifle with hopes that it's going to feel like your 13 pound varmint rifle, well, you're buying it for the wrong reason. Sure. And and so, you know, our rifles uh, shoot. Well, we guarantee them to shoot an inch, and a lot of them shoot way way better than that. Um, and for a five pound rifle, carrying it around, if it'll shoot an inch, I don't know what else you want it to do. And if that's not, I guess I just say it like this: if that's not good enough, and you want to carry a nine pound rifle around the mountains, okay. Go, go for it. it. Yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, so, I've done that, and I I don't like it. <laughs> so why the free recoil? It, there's um, if you if you lay, we just found that it's, it's not a really a science deal. It's more of a shooter thing. If you um, if you lay a bunch of stuff or you pressure it, um, and and I I don't a hundred percent free recoil it. I usually when I'm at the range, I usually have my hand laying over the top of the scope or something, so I I steady it just a little bit but I don't hold it down. Um, and it just, it seems that with a light rifle, people shoot them a lot more accurately if you apply either no or just a little bit of pressure, not a lot of pressure. I mean, people are trying to, what they're trying to do, see, you don't have to do much of anything with a heavy rifle. So, so people that are frustrated, they can't shoot a light rifle, they tend to try to simulate what a heavy rifle acts like. And that's like lay stuff on top of it or hold it down. And they just, and then you shoot the rifle act inaccurately. It doesn't, the rifle doesn't really act any different you tend to develop bad habits that way. So it's just consistency, like say shooting archery, right? You want to yep. be very consistent in your form. Exactly. And so the free recoil allows, allows you to be consistent in it. Now, do the loads, are they pickier as far as the loads as well? Um, yes. The rifle really isn't any pickier, but because it's harder for people to shoot them, it tend look all the all a rifle is is this is this system to control an explosion, right? And to make this thing that comes out the end of the barrel come out the end of the barrel the same way every time. And if you look at a rifle under high speed camera when you touch it off, like there's so much movement and I mean, I like to say it looks like the barrel flops around when you touch it off. Even on a heavy rifle, that happens, but it happens less because of the of the weight of the barrel. But and so, just like you're talking about with archery, the magic is to get that barrel to get that bolt to come out of the rifle barrel at exactly the same place in that flop every single time. And the more consistent you do that, and the less kind of um, artificial pressures you try to 
put on the gun and yourself to hold the thing in a certain way. So find a simple, unobtrusive way to just steady it a little bit and then do the same thing every time. And then generally speaking, I found that most of our rifles are twisted in a way they like a little faster, lighter bullet. And that's not always the case, um, but it is with like our 280. Um, I think it is with our 6.5. So, um, but that's more, that's more to do with um, twist rates and rifling barrel length, stuff like that. So are you, are you hand loading the 280 then? You're like, is that what you're doing? I do have some hand loads. Um, I shoot a, I shoot only copper. I shoot a 140 Barnes um, triple shock. Um, and, but I also have shot a fair amount of factory stuff. The, the new Federal, um, I've, I've shot lots of Hornady loads, good ammo. The new Federal stuff is good. Nosler has a good load. Um, so there's, there's lots of 280 factory ammo that's available now that wasn't, oh, even four or five years ago. So I think just between those three companies, there's probably 10 or 15 different bullet weight options and all that sort of stuff. Sure. How do you, how do you like shooting the copper stuff? Love it. Been doing that for, and I will say the copper bullet technology has got to the place where I, they used copper used to take a hit for accuracy. And I think 10 or 15 years ago, it was somewhat, somewhat legit. I don't think they were the most accurate bullets in the world. Now, I mean, I, I, the, the gun and the round outshoot to me and I'm a, like, I believe in copper for all the reasons, the science and the wildlife habitat reasons now that we should believe in copper. Um, I'm not forcing on anybody, but I, I believe in it. But I, I started doing it because I liked the performance of the bullet way better. And if you're going to shoot these fast, smaller bullets, um, you don't want them coming apart because I, I hunt elk a lot and I don't want them coming apart on a shoulder, which is, that's kind of the old knock of the, of the seven mag, right? With, with, uh, older bullets would be that you shoot that thing. It goes so fast, the bullet comes apart and then there's a lot of wounding loss on an elk. If you don't, if you don't uh, center punch the elk, mm. well, copper fixes that because copper doesn't expand like lead, but man, through a center block. I mean, I've seen it. I've, mm. I've, I've seen unbelievable performance out of those copper bullets. Um, they they lose hardly any mass. And I mean, if you if you gave me a choice of copper, not not for you know raptor reasons, um, just for performance reasons, I take copper all day long. Interesting. Do you? Uh, and you said you did give a name of the uh, bullet you're shooting, right? I'm sh I'm shooting triple shocks. I have on. Yeah, all copper bullet. One and Barnes is one of the. I don't know that I don't know all the history. Somebody's probably gonna give you a podcast note and tell me I'm wrong on this. But they were, they were definitely 15, 20 years ago on the forefront of the all copper thing, um, before the all copper thing really got, um, really got popular. Okay. Cool. Now, now you mentioned on the elk. You mentioned like shoulder shot versus punching it in the center, do you have a preferred shot? Do you, do you try more for a high shoulder shot or are, are you a heart lung kind of guy? Uh, I don't like, like, so I try to put an elk on the ground and I'll, <laughs> I'll take any, I'll take any way I can do it. Cause I've, I've had a lot of rough elk hunting days and those opportunities for me are pretty special. So, but my prefer, I've, I've seen and been in hunting camps where elk are high lunged either with archery or with rifles. And man, I, I don't, it's, it's ugly how far an elk can go wounded with a high lung shot. It's amazing to me actually. So I always try to keep the shot low. 
um, if, if it's a broadside shot like you want, I always try to keep the um, bullet low, heart and lung, um, and try not to high lung them. Um, you know, I took an elk at 100 yards in Colorado a year or two ago, um, and I really, really trust my rifle. I had a, um, I put it right below his ear, and he would, that's all I had between an aspen, two big aspen trees. I had a hundred years loss is pretty low on that shot, but, but I, other than that, I like it in the wheelhouse, low heart lung shot. Yeah. I lost a bull on a high lung probably seven years ago. It wasn't, Yeah, it, you know, there was a giant blood cough up not too far away, but I never recovered that bull. I looked and I looked and I looked and uh, for the life of me, I have no clue where that bull went. I've seen bulls and I had a, I was in a hunting camp where a guy hit a bull in British Columbia, um, high lunged it and the mountains up there, like they will humble you. And that, I, that bull went up and over one, maybe two of those mountains and with, with holes in the high lung. And I just, I, I was just shocked and the amount of blood and, you know, it was just amazing. So that, that's kind of seared in my mind. So I always, when I'm with my boys or, or myself, I'm always reminding myself, keep that shot low. Two um, eighty. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess we could. So you're quite the, um, quite the uh, chef at the uh, Rondies and at the dinners. Yeah. Um, did you get into that specifically, or have you always had a pretty good culinary side as well? No, I um, I grew up with um, a mom who was a great was a great cook, and I you know typical college kid, whatever I could boil on a stove or whatever was was good enough. And then somewhere along the line, after I moved to Montana, uh, a couple things happened. Um, Sarah and I got married, <clears throat> and we're kind of living between towns, at a, without a lot of restaurants nearby. And I got involved in this. Um, sort of local vor um hunter gather cooker sort of movement um read michael poland's book omnivore's dilemma and mm -hmm. um it was a life-changing book for me and i just really delved into um preparing gathering and preparing wild food to the max and i and i i started to have this reverence for the food that i never had when i just bought it at a store and i and that's where i really got into preparation and cooking and trying to be a better chef or trying to become a chef. Because once I had reverence for the elk or the deer or the mushrooms that we gathered and all the work that goes into that, I didn't want to slop it around and I didn't want to half-ass the preparation. And I just kept, you know, trying to perfect that over time. Um, and so it's been really fun and it's been a labor of love for me. I just, um, I can't hardly bring myself now to prepare and anything but you know wild food when we have friends or family over because that's I just it's kind of a, you know I guess that's my love language that's what that's people I love and respect I like to serve them and prepare on that food and so I'm I'm really serious about learning how to cook and and chef that stuff better what's your what's your go-to do you have a go-to dish I have my go-to is whatever we have in the freezer or whatever 
we caught or but i love i mean i don't know i mean elk and antelope you know two finest proteins on the planet in my opinion and so it's tough to beat uh elk and i love um you know sear elk really hot and i, I like to make a wild huckleberry red wine reduction sauce with the elk we have so i mean if i have i guess if i have one that's that's really not that detailed of a of a preparation but sure. um, that's pretty tough to beat that yeah. i would agree i've, I've had your uh, huckleberry red wine reduction sauce before so yeah, yeah. it goes excellent it goes excellent with elk so. it, do, it really does it, you know elk or antelope that sort of uh, huckleberry or blackberry red wine reduction man tough to beat that on um, wild games really good but i'll do whatever we're if we're fishing we're floating down a river we're like <clears throat> whatever we can gather up i mean we've gathered wild, wild mint um on the riverbank before and that goes into some of the breakfast and morel mushrooms or smallmouth bass or whatever we have i, I love to prepare it all Speaking of which, you got any morels yet this year, or is it still too early? It's way too early, and most of our our morels, our good morels, are are fire season generated. And thankfully, we had a really mild fire season last year. So I think, other than the river bottom morel stuff, I think we're going to have a light morel year. But that's okay. We had, I mean, in one day last year, the boys and I and Sarah picked two bushels of morels, so we've got quite a few dried. Awesome. Yeah, it's been too early here for morels as well. I got a pretty good stash of them though, but yeah. I'm always looking for the um, yeah. the fresh ones. Are you chasing them in the burns, Kevin? Or are you getting them in the creek bottoms? Or where you... We don't really have the burns. Um, yeah. I mean, we have a burn around here this year because there was a fire last year during hunting season. So yeah. I plan to get over there and check that out. Um, but mostly I follow game trails and i've had uh, really good luck and i don't know i think there might be something with the deer and elk kind of spreading the spores a little bit huh. because in one of the one of the areas i've usually found them um i can find them within about three feet of the game trail but move off much further and you won't find them huh okay well that's a good trick i'll try that mm -hmm. like like up high in the hills or down low um, generally, like I've been finding them, you know, 8,000, 9,000 feet somewhere, which I mean, our, yeah. our altitude is obviously higher by, yeah. but it's in, it's in, um, you know, probably right around where, right around when flowers just first start coming up. Yeah. Um, usually right about that time. Um, yeah. and usually kind of at the interface of like timber and where there's a little bit of sunshine around and a lot of times there's blowdowns and stuff as well yeah huh that's good i'll give that a shot that's a that's a good hint cool so how has uh covid affected kimber <clears throat> well it's not good um we have two facilities on the east coast right now one in new jersey and then well our big one in new york in yonkers new york just on the north end of new york city and then which is was um three miles from the big first hotbed in new rochelle and then right across the river in new jersey which has been the second biggest hotbed um and it's got our factories shut down um 
we're reopening slightly, but it's, you know, for those of us who live in the West, I think we can, we should be thankful that we're not in, in, um, that mentality right now. Cause it, it, it's, it's got a lot of people scared about their, about their livelihood and about their, um, health. And, um, I, you know, we have 400 and some people that work at Kimber and, um, most of them aren't working right now. A lot of us, I'm working from home. Um, and a lot of our sales, our sales staff is working from home, but we've got a lot of people that aren't and we're not producing any product right now or very little product. We're just starting to back up. So it's been, it, it's hit us, it's hit us square in the moneymaker. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. We, we moved, we moved the bulk of our people home relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, there's, there's some adjustment and it makes some things a little more difficult, but we've been able to manage most of our production. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. You're lucky. Um, what do you think? What are we looking at for a business climate and a, like a, you know, a consumer climate going forward in the next few months? What do you guys think? I think people are going to take prepping, gardening, um, chickens, some homesteading stuff a lot more seriously. Yeah. Um, I'm a little wary about supply disruptions. I noticed like uh, a port packing plant is basically closed because of COVID as well. Yeah. Um, some of those things. I think as far as the climate, things are going to be different. Things are going to change. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, and until there's really tests, ample tests, um, via either antibody tests to if you have some resistance, it's going to be really hard to... Um, keep things really safe for a long term. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think, I mean, could you imagine anybody, you know, right now saying, yeah, I'll go to a, I'll go to a concert in two months. Like, a, like we had Elton John tickets. Our boys love Elton John. We had Elton John tickets. I mean, I can't imagine in July, somebody says, even if, even if quote unquote, things are generally reopened, I just think people are going to be cautious. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, su super cautious, right? Super, it's going to be hard. I mean, we're being told that handshakes might not be around anymore, right? Like yeah. People are going to be like, ah, hi. <laughs> this, this six feet thing might stick for a minute. Yeah, I I don't know. Again, back to the thing we talked about earlier, I, I don't know how our, how our culture changed, but I'm with you. There'll be changes. Yeah, um, I'm I'm worried about the state uh, state organizations, right? Like the the CPW here, Colorado Parks and Wildlife in Colorado. Man, if if they're not able to have non-resident hunters in the fall, like that's going to be a, a huge hit to yep. their to their money making machine or, or their ability to even like probably even just function. Yep, I would yep. agree. I mean. I live in a town that is primarily tourism based and right now we're telling people to kind of stay away. Um, that's a pretty big hit to their moneymaker as well. Yeah. It's the same way here in Montana. Um, I, you know, Montana huge, it's not as big a non-resident state as Colorado is for sheer numbers of hunters, but it's big. And the rest of the summer, just like Kevin said, it's all tourism based. I've got a lot of friends that are really severely impacted by um, by all this right now. So 
I mean, on one hand, I hope it goes away tomorrow. And on the other hand, I hope we don't rush this and do something to exacerbate it and drag it out and cost people their lives. So it's just, it's, it's a tough to find the, the right spot. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to be working in the restaurant industry outside of Glacier right now. Yeah. Nor would I be a fly fishing guide primarily based around tourists as, yep. well, as well. I mean, those seem like they'd be pretty rough. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I don't I, think it's going to be better. Yeah. I, I guess like you were saying too, like even say they just, a month from now they're like oh okay everybody go back to normal how long does it actually take for people to go back to normal you know like kevin you're saying in your county it's tourist county you're asking tourists not to come like how long does it take for them to be like okay you at one time you told me i couldn't come now now you're saying come back like how long does it take for them to actually come back i think it's going to take a long time because i think this is in people's psyches Hmm. Well, I agree. I think it will be in people's psyches a bit. A bit. Um, so back to, say, backcountry hunters and anglers. Yeah. W- what are the big issues right now? I mean, outside of the Rondi, um, the North American Rondi, but what big issues is backcountry hunters and anglers really working toward? Or on? Well, obviously, the public lands focus re- remains um, first and foremost. Responsible management of the public lands um, reducing pressure on the you know there's still this continued chatter um about sale of public lands um you know we've got somebody running the blm right now who has proudly espoused his belief that public land should be sold and so we've got a watchful eye on all that and 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 then you know on all of the management of public lands so that hunters and anglers are looked out for and that wildlife is looked out for in every state there's something um and across the country there's something so it just it never really dies down no it doesn't and i I imagine with all the stimulus money and the financial hit of it it will possibly fire up the public land sales people a bit more yeah you never know i don't I would guess that, you know, these people, they never miss an opportunity to try to, to uh, capitalize on some catastrophe. So hopefully it doesn't, but I'm glad that we, you know, five or six years ago, BHA wasn't much of a organization um, from a power standpoint. We've definitely grown and increased our power. So I'm glad we're here now to shine a light on it. I, I hope, I wished all these fights could go away. We're not here because we want to fight anything, but if it pops up, um, we're going to be there. So... So where do people learn more about BHA if they want to get involved or they want to learn about what stance is? I mean, and let's also be be clear, there's some people that are anti-BHA as well, um, but they're usually more from those public land sales groups and fringe groups that really espouse falsehoods. Yeah, so you can go to our website, um, backcountryhunters.org, um, and all of our policies are there, and our state chapters are there. Um, and I would say, I mean, what I am continually amazed by are talk to some of our members. Um, I've been continually humbled by the quality and the dedication of our members. I mean, I think that I hunt a lot, and I fish a lot, and I think I care about this stuff a lot. Um, and then I go to a rendezvous and I meet like the first five people I meet. I'm like, holy smokes, those people are badasses. And, I, and, and I, I'm just, 
you know, I'm just a guy walking around there. So if you really want to know something, um, find some of our volunteers in whatever state you happen to be in, um, chat with them. Um, I think you'll, I think you'll be pretty amazed at the, um, at the quality of the people. And I continually hear things like, you know, I finally found my tribe or I found my people or whatever. And I think, I, I really think that's the way BHA is. So, you know, the website or just look up your local volunteers. I think there's a lot of that. I think you're right. Like I ran into, I think it was Jeff Jones yep. at Rondi a couple of years ago. Yep. And he was telling me like, I think it was like he drove from Alabama to Missoula yep. on his own to to go to the right and i was like wow that's some serious dedication and all sorts of stuff i was like yeah really proud to uh chat and be involved yeah there's so many great people and i i hate it that we're not having ronnie because of that because i always meet people that are just fantastic but we'll we'll be able to do something like that again and hopefully in these smaller meetings and online and then some someday we'll be back to having these events even if we're not shaking each other's hands agreed yeah, absolutely. We can we can still drink beer six feet away from everybody. You know, you can still do that online. You know, you can still drink beer online. That's true. Yeah. Awesome. You got anything you want to add? Any other questions you guys want to add? Um, I'd just say um, thanks to Seek Outside for making a good product. And, and I know, you know, we didn't even discuss this podcast-wise. That's not why we're doing it. But um, you've made our outdoor life a little better and i'm a big advocate um especially i know you do a lot of the small um you know personal stuff personal teepees but i really like the big one it's made our family trips a lot better so i appreciate you making a good product awesome thank you yeah thanks Ryan. <laughs>